Welcome in to another episode of the Growing Faith Podcast. My name is Rick McClatchy. I'm your host today, and uh, I am a staff pastor at the Rocky Butte campus of Manor House in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we're a multi-site church in the Portland metro area and down in Eugene. And our focus here at the Growing Faith Podcast is really just to help equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And a big part of being able to do the work of the ministry lies in our ability to um, really feed ourselves and be able to then help equip others with the strength that comes from knowing the Word of God. And uh, this is uh, another uh, installment of what uh, what's turning into a great series with my friend and personal hero, Lanny Hubbard from Portland Bible College. Welcome, Lanny. Glad to have you here today. How are you today? I'm doing good, Rick. Thanks. Yeah, we're coming into the end of semester and summer, and so it's a transitional time. It's good. Yeah, that's right. Um, so in the first episode, we kind of talked about the question of why study the Bible? Uh, why is it even a big deal? And I thought uh, you just you hit the ball out of the park. And as Pastor Mark would say, they're still looking for the ball uh, somewhere. And so um, great job in helping uh, go through that. And then in the second uh, episode that we did together, we talked about um, different Bible translations. Like what in the world is it with different Bible translations? How to choose one? And we have some great resources in the show notes for that episode as well. So um, if you have not had an opportunity to hear those uh, episodes, I encourage you to go back and take a look at those. Uh, and then today, we're actually jumping into kind of the next step. So so you have heard the why and you've decided, yes, I agree with Lanny that studying the Word of God is important. You have then gone and uh, maybe you've purchased yourself a new Bible to help you know get some skin in the game. You are going to invest in this process of studying the Word of God and you picked the, the translation that Lanny said was the best. He didn't say which one was the best. He just helped you understand how they all fit together. And so now you're sitting there with this big, giant, leather-bound Bible, you know, and you open it up, and you read, and you're thinking, how in the world do I understand how what was written to people thousands of years ago apply to my life today? And so we're going to talk about the, the concept of, of context and uh, the bigger, uh, the bigger word, the scary word, hermeneutics. Yikes! What is that even all about? And so, uh, Lanny, can you just uh, jump off that diving board that I have set up for you into the pool and help us understand context and hermeneutics and how we understand the Word of God from the content that we have in front of us to how we apply it to our lives today? Yeah, Rick. Thanks. I think one of the big questions that comes to people's mind a lot when they study the Bible is just the frame of reference. What am I looking for? How am I going to find it? How am I supposed to even think in the process? And uh, I think sometimes we get a, a simplistic idea that we can sit down with the Bible just by ourselves and whatever thoughts come into our mind are actually interpretations of the Bible when in fact they're not. Oftentimes they're just reflections of our own ideas and thoughts and prejudices and everything else. But when we study the Bible, we're studying uh, a piece of ancient literature. Now, it's more than just literature. It's a living book. It's, it's, a, it's an embodiment of a divine revelation that was given to the prophets and the apostles. 
but still it's it's a piece of literature and it's put together it's a piece of literature it's written it has ideas it has sentences and structure and so in order for us to understand it we have to approach it like we would a piece of ancient literature and we have to get into the heads of the people that were there because I'll put it very simply when Moses wrote the five books that he did he did not have us in mind and therefore he put things in there that he knew would be meaningful to his audience but not necessarily to us sitting in the United States in the year 2020 and so we have to go back and we have to reconstruct now what we call the historical context and we'll look at that but the word context has the idea of a setting it's a book was written the world at that time there were things happening in the, the experience of the author and the original audience of a book and so we've got to go back and find now this this amazing thing is called what did the author mean when he wrote this or we reduce it down to a little phrase is called authorial intent what was in the heart of the author when he was inspired by the holy spirit to write these words down, these words that have been preserved and passed on to us. Um, whenever you read a, a book on, about hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is simply the, the art and the science of biblical interpretation, it's what we need to do in order to figure out what an author meant, and we're looking for the meaning of the text, the meaning that was in the original writer's mind and the meaning that the original audience would have understood at that point. And, but what is that meaning? What what is the message that they would have, you know, comprehended as it came out of there? And it requires a little bit of work on our our part. Uh, we are so affected by our culture and our environment that we don't realize at times how blinded we are to reading literature from another culture or perspective, because we just assume that everybody thinks the way that we do, and they did not. And so we have to put a little bit of time and effort into this. Uh, because when we go back, and like I wrote, I read this in one of the books I was looking at, the meaning now uh, in a text, and this is what we're looking for, what is the message that was trying to be communicated? The meaning of a text is now, it's something that we find in the text. It's not something we create ourselves. It's something that the author passed on to us through the words and the techniques and so forth that he had. And so we've got to come and we've got to look at this. We've got to realize now, uh, and this is part of our process that we'll look at here right away, we have to realize the difference between us in the United States in the 21st century, the way we approach life from the way that the people at the Bible time that were living in the first century for the early church and those that were living in the Old Testament world, we have to realize how different we really are than they are. And that difference shows up in a lot of things. It shows up in uh, our worldview. Uh, our worldview, the way we think, uh, the way we explain reality and everything has been affected by the Greco-Roman culture. It didn't exist back in the days of the Old Testament. Their worldview was totally different. And so we've got to go back. And in our heads, we have to reconstruct some of that. Our, our social values, uh, our social values are very different. I mean, you go back into that world and you look at something as simple as the fact that a, an older person was valued in that culture. Today, older people are not. They grab their Winnebago's and they move to Phoenix, Arizona, and they just live the rest of their life. But here, you, you say, well, 
what's valuable to our culture well look at where our marketing centers our marketing today our advertisement centers on 30 something 30 year old um the people that are older they just buy aarp and that's just where they're at you know and <laughs> stuff but there are social values uh men versus women old versus young the values between people of different incomes and castes different uh, ethnic backgrounds and then our experience in our education um, when you go into the Old Testament world, 90% of the people that lived at that time were illiterate. They could not read. And they couldn't read because, number one, there weren't any books available to them. They had an oral culture. And they communicated orally. They passed on history orally. And it wasn't until God finally one day went to a very educated man like Moses who had been educated in the finest schools of Egypt. He'd been trained up to be a pharaoh. He was literate, and God said, write it down. But for the average little shepherd that was out there, many of them couldn't write. They couldn't read. And so we take reading and writing uh, for granted because we come from a, an educational or a literate culture. Mm -hmm. But see, a lot of these people did not. And so those things don't even come into the minds of many people, but yet when we study the Word of God, we've got to crawl back into their world just a little bit and reconstruct it. And then we begin to understand some of the analogies that are used, the illustrations that are used. So, now, yeah, you're just uh, scratching the surface here of what it means, you know, this whole journey of context and hermeneutics. And um, so I'm wondering, I, I'm just going to spring this on you and see if you can roll with the punches. <laughs> Um, to give us an example, can you think of uh, maybe a maybe a fairly well-known verse or one that you think is uh, most commonly misinterpreted or misapplied to people's lives today because of maybe a simple misunderstanding of historical context or authorial intent that uh, that you that you're like just kind of a, a flagship example of what it means to potentially kind of well-intentioned, but mishandle the Word of God? Uh, a lot of the ones that are misunderstood are, are passages, I can think of a few right off the top of my head, that relate to actual activities or practices or tangible objects that were part of their culture that people held significant because they were important in that day. For instance, you go back uh, into that famous passage uh, back in First Corinthians chapter 11 and so forth, and, and it talked about two things in the chapter, and the whole purpose of the chapter is to say that when you're in a church service and you're celebrating the table of the Lord and beginning to think about the, the ministry of the gifts and everything in the church, which comes in chapter 12, that there's a certain conduct of people within a church gathering. Number one, it says that a woman should be covered and veiled, and then it also mentions that long hair and a man is a sign of reproach in that culture. Those are cultural things. And I remember back, well, see, before your time, back when I started Bible school, and this was back in the, the uh, early 70s and so forth, right at the end of the hippie culture and everything else, they would interpret a passage like that and see, see long hair and a man is evil. And so the hippies and their long hair and everything, that's, that's immediately evil. So we banned guys from having long hair in school. But see, that's a cultural thing. It, it's not a universal code because uh, 
to make it very simple, in that day, the, the style of a Greek world was that men had shorter hair. That was just the universal style they did. And the men that had longer hair were effeminate. They were sodomites. And so he's talking about this because he's actually dealt with that earlier. Or the women wore veils. In our culture today, women do not wear veils. So back in those days, when a woman didn't wear a veil, it sent a message out. Today, when a woman doesn't wear a veil, it doesn't send the same message. These are culturally bound type of things that we find. Uh, I know I was brought up in a very legalistic church, and so they would uh, ban things like uh, tattoos or even jewelry uh, because certain pieces of jewelry were worldly and gaudy and everything because you'll find some passages like Isaiah 3 where it talks about the women of Zion and they were getting loose and they had their earrings and their bracelets and everything else, but they failed to read Ezekiel 16, when God uses the analogies that I found you as a baby in your blood, and I, I took you and cleaned you off, and I clothed you, and I put a ring on your finger, and I put a jewel in your nose, and God put a nose jewel in his own, you know, little daughter there, you know, or tattoos, and yet God says, I've engraved you, I've tattooed you in my hand, like a mother can't forget her child. And so sometimes we read these cultural things, and we think that they are also pertaining to our 21st century. And so we end up confusing what we're used to and what they were used to in their day. A lot of it is these external things. I don't know if that helps you, but. No, that's good. I think that's a, a really, again, just a kind of scratching the surface of just a couple of the things where you can take a, a cursory reading of scripture and you can actually formulate uh, some ideas and maybe even some convictions. And yeah. then you can try to enforce those convictions upon other people uh, that may not actually be consistent with what the author and then, you know, ultimately what God intended to communicate uh, through that. And so uh, it's kind of like one of those things where it is the glory of the king to search out a matter, right? Like God wants us to be, um, you know, workmen, not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, God has put truths in the word of God, but he has also made some of it where you need to mine it out. It's not just going to be this quick, obvious thing. We need to spend some time and the effort. So I super appreciate uh, you taking time to, to come today and help us understand what that process sure. even looks like. The process that you mentioned, um, different authors have tried to create pictures so that the readers could get an idea of, of this thing we have to do, the sequence of events of the process by which we discover the original historical context of scripture. The analogy that you used earlier, which was um, illustrated to us by Hayes in the book, Grasping Guard, is probably one of the most uh, useful and beneficial that I've seen in the last 10 years simply because it creates a, a mental picture for us. And I think you've probably got a diagram of it from grasping God's word there. It's the four steps of what we call the, the interpretive journey. And the interpretive journey is what takes us from the original ancient historical text to our modern day setting and the reader and how do we apply it? How do we learn it? And what parts of it do we appropriate today? And so he divides it now into, the, and he has this map where he's got an old city and the architecture is like a, a near eastern town with little adobe type of houses and so forth all the way up to modern city uh, and with skyscrapers and the western way of thinking. But between these two is a river 
and over the river as a bridge. And the river represents the, the difference between the ancient culture and our culture. And the bridge then represents what are those things that are timeless, that transcend and come over to our modern world. And they will mean exactly the same thing to us as they meant to them. And the things that are important to us just as they were important to them. The four steps then, and to walk through, and then I'll, I'll build on a couple of these just a little bit. Step number one, and this is what we've been talking about, is to understand the Bible in its original town. And it goes back to that little Near Eastern village of these little small homes. And it says, we have to, first of all, understand what these books meant to the original audience. What did the message mean? So they would go to their synagogue or they would have their public assembly and hear these words read to them. What ideas would enter their minds, the thoughts that you know, these words would generate in there. And so this is where we go back to that historical uh, setting now. We study uh, the ancient literature now. We must go back into history. And let me give you a modern application of this that maybe people can understand. It's, it's a, an issue that comes up today. And that is you hear a lot of things being thrown around right in the middle of our COVID environment right now about people's freedoms and rights, and I have my constitutional rights. And so people start waiving the different amendments of the U.S. Constitution. But oftentimes our interpretation of the U.S. Constitution is very different than what the interpretation of the founding fathers were who wrote the U.S. Constitution. And people say, well, that's not true. I says, yeah, it is. Go back and read a, a famous book. It's called The Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers was a collection of writings done by the men who drafted the U.S. Constitution. And they would now elaborate on some of the amendments and elaborate on some of the clauses. And by saying, this is what we meant when we said this. And so today we can go back and we can read our ideas into the Constitution, but they're not the ideas that the Founding Fathers had when they originally wrote it. And so we would throw up our, our hands and scream, you know, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and so forth. But none of the founding fathers ever would have said, but we think it's right for somebody to go out and exploit a child, produce child pornography, and then protect themselves behind freedom of speech. Because we don't intend you to use a freedom in order to perform sinful or unrighteous acts. You're misinterpreting the freedom that we want you to have. And so this is what's happening today. And people are hiding behind these things because they're putting modernistic interpretation. So with the Bible, we have to go back and say, what did it mean to the original audience in the original town? The second step then is to go and to look at the river between our world and their world and say, how wide is this river? Now, to be honest with you, the distance between us and the world of the New Testament is different than it is between us and the world of the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament was written primarily in a Greco-Roman culture, a Mediterranean world, uh, 2,000 years ago. But great portions of the Old Testament were written in very agrarian settings uh, under a very Semitic or, or Far Eastern type of mentality. And so the difference between that world and our world is great. Now, if you don't believe that, just go to Yemen and just go to Afghanistan. And you go to some people that are living in some of these ancient values and so forth. And you say, this is really weird. Well, no, it's not weird. It's just that's what they have continued. They've continued that line of thought. Whereas we, because of our cultural change in the New, New Testament, Mediterranean, European world, our values have switched. And so we've got to realize just how different are we. And some people 
may not be aware of how different our thinking is actually than the biblical world. Uh, the third step then is to discover the principles that cross the old world to the new world. And I think it's important that we realize, and we talked about this in one of our early settings, uh, sessions that we did, I think, and that is that when we read the story in the Bible, we realize that the historical story was written, but behind the historical events is another story. It's called the meta narrative. It's the it's the story of God's ultimate big picture, his big plan. And then in the stories written in history, we see how that plan is worked out through actual real lives. And it's the meta narrative, it's these universal values that are out there. These are the things that scream through the stories, They're the things that talk to us. They're the things that are timeless. Or as some authors have put it this, the truth is timeless, but the way the truth is revealed can change because truth can be represented in one culture differently than it would be represented in another culture. So I can teach respect in one culture, and that is like when I read Proverbs, it says uh, when an older person walks into a room, the younger person stands up. That's part of the culture. But I can still understand respect for an aging person without everybody standing up every time me, an old guy, walks into a room. Okay. And so the truth remains the same, but the way that the truth is lived and expressed can change. But the bridge represents the things that don't change. It's the principles. It's the ideas there. Not so much the way they're clothed and represented, but it's what we can still understand. And then the last one is, and this is probably one of the most difficult for a lot of speakers, is that after I figure the original meaning out, after I figure out how different our world is from theirs, but what is the truth that still affects us today? Step number four is, what's this mean in my town? What does this mean to us today? Is there anything from this text I'm reading in Genesis or I'm reading in Exodus? This book was written 3,400 years ago. Is there anything in this book 3,400 years ago that is still speaking to and is true today in, our, in the year 2020 AD? Uh, can we find it? And the answer to that is yes, it is. Um, but sometimes we have to get down to figure out just how does that apply to our day, our age. There's a, a sequence. There's a, just a very simple little sequence. It's only got two stages in it, but this is, is crucial now to the hermeneutical process, and that is this. I have to first interpret the scripture. And interpreting it means, well, what does the text mean? What did it mean in the heart of the writer? What did it mean in the original audience? But after I interpret, then I come up with application. What now does this text mean for me today? How does it apply to our contemporary situation of our church and our life? For many people today, they want to jump right into the application without ever doing the interpretation. They want to go immediately to what it means to us, what it means to me personally, and so forth. You find this in a lot of Bible studies where people sit around with a cup of coffee and a Bible and say, well, what's this verse mean to you? Well, that's the wrong question. It's what it mean to them. And once we figure out what it meant to them, then we can figure out what it means to us. But if we skip the interpretation and go just to the application, we're going to get high-centered somewhere along the line. And so we have to figure out there's two steps. What did it mean to them before I figure out what it means to me today? So there's a natural sequence to that. So that's what Duval and Hayes bring up. That's the, the four steps that are essential. And basically what they're saying is the interpretive process is not complete until we've covered all four steps. 
it's incomplete or it's only partial or even misleading if we don't take the time to make sure that we at least think about all four of those different things and bring it up to our final uh, application. What's it mean for us today? Now, a couple of, and unless you've got a question at this point. Now you're good. Um, I'm okay. loving, loving every bit of it. Uh, I might throw a question to you in a little bit, but okay. um, you can keep on rolling. Let's go back and, and look at some of these steps. I'm not going to walk through all four of them in depth, but I am going to walk through a, a couple of them. And the first one is the one I want to spend the most time in, and that is uh, understanding what the, the passage in Scripture meant in its original setting to the original people that are back there. We have to go back. We have to go back, and we have to look at a couple things back there. And this takes work because we've got a unpack a little bit of history. We've got to delve into some culture and things like that, even things like geography. You know, the Bible mentioned this place, but I have no idea where this place is. You know, what does it mean? You know, it requires the, the scholarly work going back and delving through resource material and trying to recreate the world of the Bible itself as best as we can. And in doing that, there's just a lot of sources, and we'll, we'll go into some of these maybe in another session when you want to talk about some of the tools of the trade. But let's just say this, that in the last 20 years, there's been a real change uh, in a lot of the biblical material that's been produced, and it's been a change for the good. And that is, it used to be years ago, back when even when I started my Bible training, that if you wanted to get a uh, a book that would explain the Bible, you would pick up a commentary, and a commentary would be a theologian's interpretation of what he felt the Bible meant. And so you would do that, but a lot of the commentaries that were written were just ideas. They were guys, they were expressing some ideas, and then they were expressing how these ideas could be illustrated in a sermon. These are called homiletical commentaries, and they're basically giving you clues that if you're ever going to teach about this passage, Here's a good way to teach it and whatever. But about 20 years ago, what they began to discover was the need for some, what they call cultural or Bible background commentaries. And these are commentaries that give us the history. They give us the facts. They don't give us so much one person's particular interpretation, but they start throwing all the facts at us so that in our minds, we can start putting the pieces together and reconstruct the ancient world. And so you see books begin to appear on the market, like manners and customs. How did these people live at these times? How did they address each other? What was social protocol? How did their families uh, run? Uh, how did they treat each other in the home? What was their jurisprudence process? And they, through archaeology and history, they tried to reconstruct the world of the Bible through some of these manners and customs type of book. And then your big publishing houses started producing what they call Bible background commentaries. These are books that go through, and as you read through the Bible, anytime that there's a cultural note or anytime there's a historical note, there was a battle at a certain place or a certain ruler was mentioned, they give you the background material, who he was, when did he rule, what was he like, a good guy, a bad guy, whatever. And it's the material that the Bible won't give you. It's the material that you have to go to secular history to find out but yet that secular history helps to open the Bible up because now it's not just a name on a paper. Now you understand it's a human being and this is what he was like, the character. So there was a whole group of books that began to be produced 
uh, in that. When we talk about some of these, there's just one that I'll refer to here, depending on you know how much people will listen in the future. But it's a great little Bible. It was put about two years ago. It's called a Cult Cultural Background Study Bible. It was put out by Zondervan. And what they did is they took the NIV text, and then in the footnotes at the bottom, as you read through the text, any time a verse would mention a cultural thing, they would throw in a note at the bottom that would explain that cultural activity, that cultural idea. So you don't have to grab a whole bunch of other books. They're right there. And the whole purpose of this study Bible was to give you your Bible and the kind of stuff you need to bridge this gap all on one page. It's all together, and it makes it very, very easy to follow and understand. Uh, the Old Testament notes were constructed by one of Zondervan's uh, great Old Testament scholars, John Walton. The New Testament notes were put together by uh, one of my all-time heroes, Craig Keener, and uh, both of them have written separate volumes uh, on that, like the IBP, Bible Background Commentary, to the Old Testament, to the New Testament. These are great tools to to help us to go back and, and to try to reconstruct the world, but we'll talk about a little bit of that more later. At this point, though, there's, there's a practice that the reader can get into, and that is this. Whenever I read the Bible and I'm trying to figure out what did the Bible mean in its original historical context, I need to learn to ask questions to the Bible itself. As I'm reading, ask questions and see is the answer to this question made available to me? And uh, I'll break it down into uh, something that people can identify with. In the English language, we have six basic interrogatives, who, what, how, why, when, where. These are the six basic questions in the, in the English language. We're actually going to cut off that interview with the Lanny Hubbard right there and we're going to bring back the rest of it in the next episode so a little bit of a cliffhanger for you today as he set us up for those six interrogative questions that we can ask about the scriptures and learn more effectively how we can take what we are reading and actually clearly understand what it means to be able to effectively apply it to our lives. So I look forward to catching up with you more next week as we bring back part two of this great conversation with Lanny Hubbard. And so I look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, if you'd like to connect with me, you can reach me at rickm at manahouse.church. Thank you so much for being a part of the Growing Faith podcast. Please uh, feel free to like, comment, and rate the podcast and share it with your friends. Love to get the word out more and more so more people will be able to access the content that we are putting out. So with that, God bless you and have the most amazing day.